So shall uh, we start again? Are most people here? Are we waiting for more coming with the? But so, let's see how it comes. So this morning, uh, we looked at uh, more the contact with the senses in terms of the grasping, which I think is interesting as an exploration because it's kind of really like really the basics of living our life. So in a way, if we want to practice in daily life, of course, we can do regular sitting meditation or walking meditation. But I, personally, I feel that in terms of the contact through the senses, there is a lot of practice you can do. Uh, you see somebody, you see something, you are in the queue in the supermarket, whenever. And to me, this practice of being aware of the contact and the senses in a caring and careful way make the practice really like we can use it anytime, anywhere. But of course, this is again something I think is essential as I talk about the question about the experience and the observation that really we have to be so careful with the mindfulness that it doesn't turn into self-consciousness. I mean, the idea of the meditation is actually to dissolve the self. I mean, you have this famous saying of uh, Dogen, who is a Japanese and master of ancient time, and he said uh, to practice the path, to study the Buddha way, is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So I think we have to be very careful. This is something like a little subtle sometimes, maybe not so subtle all the time, when you have the mindfulness, awareness, but actually it gets associated with judging. And then it's kind of like you're aware of yourself in a tense way. And you're actually constantly, you know, in a way, judging yourself, judging the awareness. I mean, I used to live in a Buddhist community many years ago, and we used this beautiful idea of compassion and wisdom and awareness to accuse each other. You were not compassionate. <laughs> you were not mindful. You did not wash your cup. And I think, wait a minute, you know? So it's back to aspiration. It's really the difference between aspiration and expectation. I think we really have to be aware of that. So when we talk about being aware in a caring and careful way, it's really an exploration. And an exploration which is infused with compassion and wisdom for ourselves and for others, of course. So what I like to look at now is grasping, but in a slightly different way. So we leave the very experiential senses, which we can really investigate in daily life, and it's quite fun things to do. And now to look at, in a way, how do we grasp at identity? How do we grasp at others? how we might even grasp at views. 
But let's, let's start with identity. So uh, I presume so, it seems most of you have done meditation, so most of you must have heard, especially if you did Buddhist meditation, either you heard about emptiness, either you heard about not-self, either you heard about selflessness. So, of course, you know, there is this uh, idea of having no self, of being selfless, of being empty. But what does that mean in actual fact, and what is it we can explore with it? And so to me, this is a very interesting practice we can do, again, not in a self-conscious way, but in an experiential way. And in a way, looking first at exploring what does my identity rest upon? Because not self, emptiness, selflessness doesn't mean that you do not exist. That I think is very important to see. What is it that's negated? The fact that is negated is not that you exist. You exist, you're not going to disappear in a puff of smoke one day. This is not the aim. But the aim is actually to realize that we are not a self-existing identity. So we do not exist of and by ourselves. So basically the idea of emptiness and not self is the idea of connection, is the idea of conditionality. And so if you look at it from this prism, that we're not trying to dissolve, eradicate ourselves. On the contrary, what the Buddha is graced inside to see was about condition. That actually we are a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. So what we have to be careful is this idea that if I practice meditation enough, I will be able to go beyond condition, that it be beyond inner conditions or that it be beyond outer condition. And I don't think that's what the path, the teaching is about at all. I think on the contrary, what you see when you look, that's what in my late, latest books, it's a bit old now, my last book, but this was uh, the spirit of the Buddha and so I was kind of just using various quotes and commenting on various quotes about the Buddha by the Buddha. And what is very clear from the Buddha is that his insight came from seeing, oh, conditions. Things are conditional. I have this thought, they are painful, could I do something about it? I have this experience, what are the conditions of it? How can I change it? And so if we look at different aspects of the teaching, they're really not about going beyond condition. But on the contrary, to understand conditions better and to realize how influenced we are by condition. So if you get the idea that one day I'm going to be, because you hear this word, unconditioned, so you think, well, unconditioned, meaning that either there exists this metaphysical unconditioned with a big capital U, 
And one day I must kind of, you know, jump in it, swim in it, or live in it, I don't know. All that, I am unconditioned by anything. So one day I will be finally floating on my little cloud of unconditioned, and then people in their condition, too bad. Next lifetime, my dear. <laughs> but if you look at the text, the Buddha is not saying the unconditioned capital U. He just says unconditioned awakening is to be unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. So then we might kind of like totalize it. We must be at all time, in all places, be unconditioned by this thing. But I think that's a little idealistic, you know? So in a way, what, we've have, what the Buddha is trying to make us see is that there are various conditions that will make us experience different things, relate to each other in different ways. And that's why he puts so much emphasis on what are the conditions that are going to help you to be more harmless, to be more wise, to be more compassionate? What are the conditions that are more likely to make you harmful, uh, angry, despairing, or whatever it might be? And so when we look at grasping, so if we have done lots of meditation and or studied Buddhism, then we might, okay, I don't have a self, so I don't need to grasp at it. So that's one thing gone. We don't have to worry about. But then, if we practice mindfulness, we actually realize what is it, what is it that we are grasping at in terms of our identity. Because the Buddha is not saying we should not have an identity. He says you have, you have to build a strong sense, healthy sense of self of a human being operating in the world, helping yourself, helping others. So he doesn't tell us you know, to disappear. And, and so what he is saying is, in a way, we are a flow of conditions, meeting another flow of outer conditions. So what I mean by inner condition is all that makes us function, you could say. You have the thought, the feeling, the body, you have the society, you have the culture, you have the experience. So lots of things, in a way, create us, construct us over time, and we are here today. And tomorrow, some condition could change. I hope so, not so for you. I mean, they'll change to some degree. I mean, more dramatically, less dramatically. But one thing which is very unlikely to happen is that by the end of the afternoon, I will have become a giraffe. That is extremely unlikely. I mean, I could have a heart attack. That's possible. So there is, I mean, it, it, we have to be careful that there is certain condition and some which are not, you know, in the running. I think we have to kind of, what is it we look at? So then... What becomes interesting in terms of the mindfulness, and I think that's what the practice is about, is to explore the condition that forms us. That's the first thing. And then after that, to explore the impact of the outer condition. 
Because often, again, we have this impression, oh, if I practice long enough, then no matter what happens, I will be okay. The famous equanimity. You know, back to the little cloud. But I would say, yes, you can be fully equanimous if everything goes well. If everything goes well, I think generally we can be fairly equanimous. If things don't go well, then it depends what they are because there are things we are more triggered by, other things we are not. What triggers somebody might not trigger you, and vice versa. So the outer condition that going to influence things can be very different for different people. And we have to be very careful of thinking, because it works for me, it's going to work for them. Because I remember I used to uh, have uh, pain and illness when I lived in the alternative capital of England, uh, not Glastonbury, but uh, Totnes. And everybody, when I was ill, and sent me to lots of uh, weird and wonderful things until we realized it had nothing to do with any of these things which had no effect whatsoever, and it was just a mechanical, physiological problem which had to be taken care of by a little surgery. So. We, we, we have to see there are many different conditions. And so then, in terms of grasping, to me, what is interesting in terms of grasping is to see how we start to grasp at one of the conditions that forms us. And as soon as we do that, we're actually really limiting ourselves to an amazing degree. And then, when you do that, there is no creativity possible. Because instead of being this uh, full flow of condition, many different complex organisms, I mean, this complex organism becomes reduced often to just one thing. And it's very interesting. For, for example, if we take the, the three functionality, we could say, in general, you have thoughts, you have feeling, emotion, and you have physical sensation. And, I mean, what is a thought? A thought is just a little firing in the brain. I mean, it's a little, boom, a little bit of electricity in the brain, and that's it. And we can become so obsessed by a thought that we actually reduce ourselves to that thought. That's what I mean, when you grasp you're going to reduce yourself to what you grasp at. So that's the image of the fist. I'm going to sneeze. Possibly. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. So to notice, you know, we have a thought. So of course, the tree is not having the thought. The neighbor is not having the thought. My own organism is producing a thought. And so, and we come into contact with the thought, and generally, we have a strong identification with, I think, therefore, I am. I mean, this is a famous one. But to see, actually, yes, I have a thought. It could be a very powerful thought. But to be careful that if we become so identified with a thought, we cannot see anything else. Like, you know, you might suddenly, I don't know, I hope you don't, but my life is finished, or my life is boring, 
or whatever thought it is, suddenly it's like, oh, this is impossible, or I will never manage this. I mean, once I, many years ago, I was trying to do something in France and it was fairly bureaucratic. And I thought, that, you know, it'd take me years, two years to get to the papers and this and that, and that. And then, you know, I go to the office and I show the forms filled in triplicate and everything. And the lady says, oh, you missed still a form, come back in two weeks. So I come out and I found myself paralyzed on the statement, on, on the pavement. Like people had to move around me, I was just like. And then I thought, wait a minute, what's going on? And I was uh, grasping at the thought and become just a thought, this is impossible, we'll never manage this, you know, this is hopeless, basically, that was a thought. This is hopeless. And then creative awareness came in and said, wait a minute, are you hopeless? You can read, you can write, you can fill another form. And that was my breakthrough with bureaucracy in France. <laughs> and and but what it helped me to see is that you could have a thought, you could grasp at the thought, totally identify, reduce yourself to the thought, and then it would impact the whole organism. So that you grasp at the thought, but then it impacts the body, it impacts the emotion. And so you kind of grasp by one of the conditions and then it has this kind of amplifying effect at different level. And so what I think is important is not, I'm, I'm not saying you should not have any thought. <laughs> we all have thought and we're lucky to have thought. It means yeah, our brain is functioning. But to, we, through the mindfulness, to see that the concentration, the anchoring is not about not having thought. It's not about not being distracted. Because the mind will be distracted at time. I mean, if you really don't want to have any thought, I can give you the recipe. <laughs> so if that's your big aim in life, you go for a month at the forest refuge, you meditate 10 hours a day, and I would guarantee you by the end of the month, you'll have no thought because nothing is going on. I mean, that's an easy way to have no thought. So the thing is that we have thought. They're really part of our condition. And I think that's one of the great things about mindfulness is that we can anchor. So I would generally say not to fix on the thought because often I think when we fix on the thought, anchor in the thought, often we get a little uh, self-conscious. There is a little tension arising. So generally what I will recommend is anchoring the body, the breath, the sound, whatever. And the, the sideline with vipassana, with experiential inquiry to notice, oh, what was I thinking? What was the language I was using? What was going on? What do I think? Do I need to think this all the time? And then you start to have a very different relationship to your thought. You don't feel like, I have to think this thought. You don't think this is my thought. This is my identity. You just say, hmm, there is a thought. Should I continue with it or not? What can I do about it? I mean, I, um, now that my mother is getting older, 
I am uh, basically there and taking care of her, and she's my priority. And so sometimes it goes well. At the moment, it's going quite well. She's really fine. In the winter, it's always a little more difficult. And so sometimes, you know, lots of things happen. And then I go to bed at night. I am like, oh, like I'm not worried about her. I'm not anxious. But I can see the mind because of the little tension, energy, all this. I kind of see the mind circling, you know, kind of not anxious, anxious, but, you know, starting to have all kind of, you know, little thought. And then I think, yes, I could continue with this and then not be really able to fall asleep and whatever. Or I can read a book, uh, generally a slightly boring book, and then it changed, it changed a little the direction of my thought. You know, I'm not in that loop. I'm just thinking about something else and the mind goes somewhere else. And then that little feeling goes. And then half an hour later, I can go to sleep. So in a way, it's kind of looking at the impact of our thought. What is, what, how do they trigger us? Uh, how the language, to me also, what is interesting is the language, what we say to ourselves. Another interesting thing is repetition. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of our thought is about selfing. But I mean, we exist, we don't need to self on top of it. And I think a lot, it's interesting if we notice in meditation, you see, you know, it's kind of like you live your life, you function and everything, and then you comment on what you're doing, and you then the commentary on the commentary on the commentary, which are not really necessary. Because, I mean, what we need to do is live our life with enough consciousness to go about doing what we do with wisdom and compassion. But we don't generally, you know, unless you are really somebody who has to write a diary all the time, possibly we don't need the comments of the comment of the comments. And to me, that's one of the things about the, the mindfulness is that it's not going to stop thinking. It's on the contrary, it's going to help to think more creatively, appropriately, spaciously. And all that selfie, which is not necessarily, will go. And then we'll have more mental real estate to do something else, to do something creative. Because a lot of energy go into all these firing stuff, actually. So noticing that, kind of, you know, if we grasp at the thought and you can see it start to repeat itself and how you identify with it. And if you can, hmm, all right, there is this thought, what has arisen, what is going on, how can I creatively engage? Then you have feeling. A feeling, I know people think thought are more difficult, but personally I think feelings actually are more difficult because they're like, it's visceral. I mean, feeling, they're not floating and doing their thing, feeling they're felt in the body. So it's all chemical, biological stuff happening. And so you feel it. And because we feel it, we think it exists, which really means it means something. So here the thing a little problematic is a perception. We feeling what I find fascinating is we have a feeling. So one moment we do not have it, next moment we have it. And then how we identify with it. And so with the feeling, it's kind of like 
what does it mean? I mean, we are basically meaning-making machine. I mean, this is good idea for us, you know, to understand things, to perceive things. But the more we make meaning, the more we do association, the more we do proliferation, so it kind of, again, feed each other. And so in a way, with the mindfulness, to see, again, I have a feeling. I have a strange feeling. I have a strong feeling. But am I necessarily just my feeling? But when we feel it, when we feel angry, or when we feel sad, or when we feel fearful, we don't see anything else because it propagates through the whole body and mind. And so generally, we, this is me, this is... And generally, that's a thing with the grasping at the feeling, at the emotion, is that immediately we have this strange impression this is going to last forever. As soon as there is intensity, there will be this kind of associated feeling of, imp of permanence. It's intense, which means it will never stop. And that's why the experiential inquiry is so important in terms of emotion to see. They shift, they change, they kind of, you know. I mean, we might feel repetitively a certain way, but does it mean that you are necessarily an angry person or a sad person or a fearful person? I mean, you have, and that's, I know what I'm going to say is maybe a little uh, controversial, but I'll say it. So often I have the impression that people feel about feeling that they're always there, just waiting to jump. So that basically this is saying, you know, within me there is this condition which is unchanging and it is waiting to come out. And so generally, you expect it to happen, to come up. So when it comes up, oh yeah, that's the same. That, it's normal to come up because it's deep within, it's there, and it's going to come up. But personally, I wonder if we could not look at it differently, that certain conditions makes us impatient. Other conditions make us sad. Other conditions makes us fearful. But it doesn't mean that we always, deep down, somewhere, always fearful, sad, or whatever it is. So to me, that is much more conditional. Yes, I might have a tendency to feel angry. OK, but it doesn't mean that I feel angry all the time. I mean, some time ago, there was a person wanted to work with me because she felt guilty. She said, I always feel guilty. And so I said, okay, can you be aware of when you feel fine? First I said, can you be aware when you don't feel guilty? But then she was kind of always waiting to feel guilty, so it did not work. I said, no, 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 no. Can you be aware when you feel totally fine? And then she started to say, that's true. I don't always feel guilty. So first thing. Second thing, I said, try to see in which condition the guilt seems to arise. And so she observed a little more. And then she realized only one person made her feel guilty. 
So from being always guilty, there was just this one person, and then she could creatively engage with it. That yes, this person made this emotion arise in her. And so how could she creatively engage with that? And so in a way with the emotion is really no uh, kind of through the mindfulness seeing when do they happen? How do they happen? How long do they last? And all these different things. It's all these kind of different aspects. So again, it's an exploration. We're not trying to stop having emotion. I think emotions are function of the organism. Let it be sadness, fear, anger. It's all function of the organism. But if it becomes habituated and then we identify with it, and then we say, I am just sad. And then you say, I will never be anything else. There is this strange story. Somebody was telling me of a fellow who for many, many years, he was uh, very depressed. And then after different things, he was not depressed anymore. And he said for two years, he felt very weird because he could not identify with how he felt. Because he was, you, his sense of identity was that he used to feel like this. Now he did not feel like that at all. And he kind of thought, is this me? And then he kind of got used to feeling like that. And then he did not compare it. Oh, it's like I follow a group who teach yoga and meditation in a prison. And what is so interesting with they often write letters in the newsletter from the prisoner. And often the prisoner say, I never knew I could feel different. I never knew I could feel peace. I never knew I could feel compassion. And what was then interesting that then they could see. So first they thought they would always feel terrible. Now they could see they could feel differently. And then you have lots of people saying, oh yes, I could feel that I was reverting. And then I applied different things so I could go back to that more uh, helpful state. So that is it interesting about emotion. And then we have sensation. So sensation, uh, we talked a little about already, is, I mean, they, you have the sensation and we talked about it, but we also have the body and how we can identify with the body in a positive or negative way. Because I think you have to see we, we often grasp negatively at, at things. And one of a good experiment is looking at oneself in the mirror. You know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, oh, this is me. Whoa. I don't know about that. You know, I'm, I'm stuck with this person looking like that. Or you feel fantastic and you think, oh, yeah, I don't look too bad. You know, I'm okay. I mean, it's the same body. And one moment you decide, you know, this is a bad me, physical me, and the next moment it's fine me. And that is interesting to see how we look at ourselves, how we relate uh, with our identity, positively or negatively, about the body in terms of many different things, in terms of society expectation in terms of people making remarks or all kinds of things. You know, where do, 
Because, I mean, in a way, our identity has to reside in the body. That's what appears to others. I mean, it doesn't appear to us until we look at ourselves in the mirror. And it was so fascinating with my uh, mother-in-law, who has died since. But what, many, many years ago, we took her to a wedding. And of course, she was the oldest person, because she was 90. And she thought that the people of her generation were actually the people who were 20 years younger. So she saw herself at 20 years younger when she was the only one left in the whole family. It was fascinating how the identity she had was totally different from, in a way, the way she looked. It was fascinating how our identity shift uh, in terms of the body. So looking at that, how we grasp or not, or creatively engage as how the body contributes to our identity, contribute to this flow of condition. So do we fix in some way we look? Do we fix in some illness we have? Do we reduce ourselves to some illness? Do we reduce ourselves to some feature of our body? And so looking at that, or is it just one of the conditions that forms us? Then in terms of um, identity, you also have qualities. And that's an interesting one, because this is getting a little more subtle. Qualities, you know, good quality, negative qualities. And you might, you know, and often we kind of like, especially with others, but possibly with ourselves, you know, you might suddenly think, you know, I'm always a bad person, or I'm always a good person, or that person is always a good person, or that person is always a bad person. And one way to notice it is that somebody comes to you and say that this bad person has done a good thing. And you say, no, 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 it's a mistake. <laughs> or if somebody comes to you and says, this friend of yours, or you think he's a good person, has done a bad thing. And you say, no, 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 it's a mistake. It's like kind of like we imagine that qualities are forever and solid and fixed, when we can know from many different things. Upon certain condition, we'll move toward more positive quality. Upon certain other condition, we'll move to other qualities. And also, we cannot have all the qualities. I am, um, at the moment, maybe I should not mention it, but poor thing. I'm really concerned about Aung San Suu Kyi, but not for everybody else's concern, uh, because everybody wants her to declare something about the situation in Burma. Even the Dalai Lama wants her to say something. And personally, I think she doesn't need to. We, we, the, we should leave her alone. <laughs> she had suffered so much. And, and now, because she's a, a Nobel Peace Prize, and now, because she's this good person, she must be perfect all the time and behave the way we want her to behave. We might not do it ourselves, but she's a good person. She must do it all the time in any circumstances, no matter what happened. And I think this is like totalizing, totalizing. Personally, I respect her as a person, 
and I respect her decision to do what she thinks is the best, considering the condition she finds herself in. And there are many conditions that we don't know. I mean, we don't know that for many years when she was under our arrest, she was very depressed and very uh, unwell, very unwell. And the only way she survived was through the meditation. So it's kind of like we think, oh, that person is like this, they must do that. So I think we have to be careful there because we often do that for ourselves, also for other people. So see, do I grasp at a quality and then limit myself and others through that grasping at their quality instead of seeing that it's conditional. Like all things, it's conditional. Do I have the time? I wanted to talk about... Uh, So briefly, 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 I will. Uh, I wanted to talk a little because whenever we talk about grasping, and nobody has asked anything about it yet, <laughs> but generally there is a question: What about love? No, but you might have noticed I did not use the term attachment, non-attachment, or detachment. You know, detachment makes me think about detached house in England. You have semi-detached. So uh, what I think is interesting is, okay, we are looking, looking at the grasping of the condition that forms us. And then, of course, we can grasp at the different outer condition in which we encounter our impact by. And so one of the things that we have is relationship, the thing that we exist in the world with others. And so as part of that, we love. And I think love is a very important, essential quality to experience in whatever way it is. Love of nature, love of partner, of children, of animal, of plants, of the sea, whatever it is. I think that loving is a very important quality to experience. Of course, you cannot, it's impermanent and conditioned. You cannot experience it to the same degree all the time. But I think it's very nurturing. It's very important to experience it. So when we talk about non, what I would call creative wise love, creative non-grasping love, what does it mean? Actually, the first thing I like to look at is love for ourselves, is how do we relate to ourselves? And often what is weird with that is that actually, we don't like ourselves. But that means you're stuck with you all the time. You're all the time stuck with somebody you don't like. I mean, this is a bit tough, you know? <laughs> because what is the quality of love? The quality of love is lightness and warmth. These, I think, are very important quality to experience. So if we were to love ourselves, we will feel light and warm all the time. I mean, this is so easy to do. And that, I think, is something to consider a little in terms of that. That actually, and that's why I think this uh, practice is very important, we'll do it the last practice this afternoon, is mudita, appreciative joy. And I think part of love, love of ourselves, love of others, is that appreciative joy to learn to appreciate ourselves, appreciate others. 
with wisdom and compassion. So then, when, let's say, you're in love with somebody, you have a feeling. So you have this person. And then, in which way can you creatively love? And in which way can you grasp? And that's fun to look at. What is it if I love somebody, and if I grasp, what am I grasping at? Am I grasping at the person, which then means I want to be next to the person all the time, which might be a little problematic. You know, often we do this, you know. The next thing is we can grasp at the feeling that the person is producing within us, and then we want to be next to them all the time, so we can have that feeling within us. But what if, for a little while, they don't produce a feeling? Does it mean we don't love them anymore? What is the love based upon? That, I think, is interesting. Are we grasping at the person? Or are we grasping at the feeling the person produces? Or are we grasping at an idea of how they should be? And then, do they fit it or not, and for how long? That's also an interesting one to look. Am I seeing the person, or am I seeing the person, and then the, often, this is something I've not mentioned yet, is that often we can grasp at something that does not exist. So that you grasp at something that exists, I would say, fair enough. But that you grasp at something that's not there, and often that's what happens. You might look at your child, you might look at your dog who does not behave, you might look at your partner who, I don't know, uh, what he might do. Uh, Stephen at the moment, is, my husband, is really exhausted. He finished a book, he's exhausted. And when he's exhausted, he sighs. But it's really, really painful sighs. And when you hear it, when he does it, I try to do lots of listening meditation. Because it's kind of tough, you know, you hear this. <gasps> you know, it's really, ah, you know, it breaks your heart, you know. And so part of you think, you know, could he stop it? And part of you think, you know, what can I do so he doesn't do it? And, and but now I've really, I mean, in Korea, the monks asked me to tell him to stop doing it. It was so demoralizing, you know. But, I mean, they were making him get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and only, uh, no, 2 o'clock in the morning and only four hours sleep. So he was just like, you know. So anyway, so you have the person and they might, you know, at time. So then what is interesting here is what am I grasping at? Am I grasping at the imaginary idea that my partner should be like this all the time and he should never do this? So you're kind of grasping at an imaginary person and comparing the real one to the imaginary one. And they, I mean, this one is abstract. They are complex. They're ne never going to fit it. I mean, of course, if the person is aggressive and everything you want to get out, I'm not wise. Wisdom is there here. But to look, am I relating to the person? Am I relating to my expectation of the person? Or am I grasping at the imagination about the person? 
This is very interesting to see when we are in relationship. And to me, creative wise love, the first condition for it is actually acceptance. That we totally, totally accept the person. This is a gift of love. We accept the person totally. And then from that, we can discuss in a kind way what is difficult. Because you see, when you have problem with people, uh, especially living together, generally the problem is not with the love. Often you think, if he or she loved me enough, they would change. But it has nothing to do with love. It, the person not changing has nothing to do with how much they love you. It has to do with their capacity to be able to see their conditioning and do something about it. And so in a way, when there is some difficulty, how can we address them? To me, that's what is really with this creative love, once you really accept the person, and then you can see that when two people who love each other live together, then the problem is not the love, the problem is your habit. Because you think your habits are better than theirs. So you think, you know, mine are better, so they must change. And they think the same, so it's kind of like a stalemate, you know. And then often the danger there is that you do the little listing. You know, he does this, he or she does that, and that, and that, and you know, you're kind of calibrating all the time. This I would not say is creative, why is love? is how can we support each other? How can we appreciate each other? How can we love each other? And in a way, how can we grow in love? To me, it's something to be cultivated. And that's where I think the grasping comes in. If we grasp, then often the love will not be able to grow. And if we creatively engage with the love, with the relationship, I think then lots of growth can come in. And then the last thing I wanted to mention in terms of uh, grasping was about views. I mean, what are views? I'm not saying views as in watching something. I'm uh, talking about views as in having ideas, concepts, theories. Again, what is a view? Uh, just a bit of electricity in the brain, and at the same time, you could kill, kill somebody for your views. I mean, I, I think that's very interesting grasping at something unsubstantial, which can then can be so dramatic. And what is interesting there to look at briefly is generally we have an idea. So it's my idea. That's where you have the identification. And it's a good idea. That if it's a good idea, everybody should believe it because it's the only good idea. So I think it's very interesting. And so when you discuss something with somebody, the person might question your idea, but you take it as a questioning your identity. You see, that's a problem. If you identify with your idea, when somebody questions your idea, they're questioning your identity. But a lot of the time, they're just questioning your idea. Is this a good one or not? And that's where we see we, if we can have a dialogue or if we can have an argument. 
An argument each will defend their idea and actually they're defending their identity. When we have a dialogue, two identity comes together and something creative comes through the two person coming together. And they kind of, you know, a striking different idea in different people. So they're kind of striking each other and something more can come up. And that one is very interesting to look at. And finally, just one thing is to see that something we grasp at, which is we cannot not grasp at it, though by being aware of it, we can be more creatively engaged with it, is we grasp, we identify with our own experience. And because it's my experience, it's a good experience, everybody should have the same experience. And that you'll find in all circle and meditative circle too. And so everybody says, my method is better than your method, even if your method is not so bad, but still. And to me, this is a very important thing to see. That yes, we have our an experience, which are very helpful. And yes, we can share them with others. But because they've not had our experience, they cannot have the same conviction about them. They have not experienced it. I mean, that's what I saw with lots of uh, great meditation teachers. I mean, each, of the, each one I met was convinced his method was the best. And then I saw it's because they are limited by the, by the condition. They're limited by the fact they're only experiencing that. So I think this is something we have to be careful about since we hear about a lot of experiences, a lot of different teaching, then everything. And you think, but which one is the right one? Which one is the best one? Which one is the fastest one? But each has a little, you know, I am the complete, I am the shortcut, I am this, I am that, generally. A little identification there, I find. And personally, I would say, you can have the best method, you can have the best teacher, and if he doesn't suit you, you're better with a, a middling teacher and a middling teaching. Very important. I think it's very important. And it's nothing, no fault of your own or no fault of the teacher. It's just, it doesn't suit. I had a fanta I mean, very fascinating experience in Korea. I mean, you know, everybody thought the master was fantastic. Da, da, da. And he was, he was. And uh, then this Australian guy came and he could not understand what we could see in that guy. He really did not get it. He kind of like, he came twice and he kind of, what's the matter with this? Well, what do you see in him? And he could not see anything else. But it doesn't mean he cannot see something in somebody else. But obviously, my master cousin did not do it for him, that's for sure. <laughs> so I think, I think it's very important to see that. That yes, we can creatively engage with our practice, with the Dharma, with the teaching. But to be careful again, not to grasp at it. Not to reduce it through the grasping. So that's what I wanted to say. And I know I've talked uh, quite a bit. And now, I want us to do a little bit of meditation and a very different technique. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Go back to what you do. But I thought we could do, what is this? 
the famous what is this that they teach in Korea. So this method is very simple at one level. You just sit in meditation or do walking meditation and you just ask silently, inwardly, what is this? And that's all you do. And the important thing to see with this practice is not a practice of answering. It's a practice of questioning. And what we're trying to develop is a sensation of questioning. So the words are not important. The what, the is, the this are not really important. The important point is a question mark. We're trying to become a question mark. And so in this practice, you have the samatha and the vipassana cultivated together. The anchor is the fact that you come back to the question when you become distracted. The vipassana is the fact that you don't repeat this like a mantra. You don't say, what is this, what is this, what is this? But you really ask the question. So you really try to develop a sensation of questioning, of perplexity. And what's interesting with this practice is that it helps us over time actually to be more flexible and to be more creative. And that's why it's very interesting if you see an artist in Korea, because I am interested in art, so in Korea I used to visit painters. And once uh, we visited this lay woman who was a famous uh, calligrapher. And to my shame, Stephen, who was among them, and we met there, uh, kind of forced her politely to do some calligraphy in front of us, which she would not normally do. So she sat herself, she had the fig, and actually it was just one sign, one calligraphy she did. But what was interesting is that she did about 30. You know, you think it's all kind of, you know, intuitive and everything, but no, they do a lot of them. And so, you know, she would... And then, time to time, every five or six, she would... And she would put that one there. The rest would go here. And you could see that actually, when she did the one she put there, there seemed to be something, like a certain kind of different kind of nearly, you could say, vibes. Like she was totally in the whole thing doing it without any grasping, but with this total uh, being present to it. And so I think we can look at the what is this as in a way, you, could, you might ask me, but what are we asking? We're not asking so much as throwing the question into the moment. Generally, we have a tendency to ask questions to define, to reduce, to limit, to gain certainty. Here we're actually asking the question, what is this to the whole moment? And so we cannot define the whole moment. But through the question, we can open ourselves to the whole moment. So this is uh, the idea about this. And so we'll just do one uh, sitting meditation of it. And so to see that some people will try it and like it. Some people will sit there thinking, what is this? What is that? Why am I asking this stupid question? <laughs> You don't have to ask it. If you, 
if it does not suit you, you don't have to do it. And some people, they do it, and then it makes them a little anxious. And then generally I would say, put it together with the breath, or with the listening, or with the body, so that you're aware of the breath, or the body, or the listening, and time to time, you drop the what is this. Shall we try it? Okay, so we stand and stretch a little. We find a comfortable posture. So the back is straight. The shoulders are open. And gently and steadily asking the question, what is it? And we can do this in two ways. We can either breathe in, and as we breathe out, asking, what is this? Or we can ask the question, what is this? And remain a little bit with that sensation of questioning. And when it goes, then we come back to the question, what is this? What is very important is actually not to ask the question with the head. But instead, we try to ask the question from the belly. So bringing the energy down into the belly and from there asking, what is this? Opening to the whole moment again and again. So before we do the final meditation, uh, which actually uh, I would like to do a guided meditation on mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A, which is a meditation at appreciative joy. And so to see, because you could have this impression, not grasping is about being serious and not fun and doom and gloom. But I, I think actually it's a country, and that's why I lead non-grasping to creativity. Because I think if we don't grasp, actually there is a lot of joy for actually artistic activity, for compassion, for wisdom, and also I would say for joy. And so, because if we have a less kind of, if we don't grasp, there is less reduction. There is more space. And I feel there is also more, we're not into abstraction. So we're really here. And I think if we're really here, then we can be in life in a very, you know, appreciative way. And I think appreciation for me is at different level. So what I like to do is do the guided meditation and I'm going to do it 
possibly in a little different way. Uh, I, do the, I do this sometimes with traditional technique. I kind of, you know, have my little take on it. So take it at my take and not the only way. But just one aspect, one way to look at mudita. So the way I look at it is in two ways. In terms of appreciation for ourselves, our quality, our condition, and different things. And also, I see it as this rejoicing with others. I think in Mudita, you have this wonderful joy for yourself, but also rejoicing in the happiness of others. And I also see, uh, in terms of appreciation, is appreciation of our efforts. Because what is interesting with effort is that for us, it's effort only if it works. You might try very, very hard, but if you don't get a result, you'll say, I did not try hard enough. Personally, I don't think that. I think if you put lots of effort in and it doesn't work, possibly the condition in a way were against you. Nothing to do with your effort. So I think one thing which is important is to recognize our effort, to really see most of the time we do the best we can considering the circumstances. So you might say to me, but you know, 10 years ago I did this, and if only I had not done this, you know, and I did not try hard enough, and if only I... And I will tell you, 10 years ago, Considering the circumstances, you did the best you could. Of course, now the conditions are different, you are different, so of course now you would do something different, but now is not then. Then you really did the best you could within the condition. And it doesn't mean you're going to repeat it. It means that now you might have understood more about it, and then you can try if you want to do it in a different way. And so I think that's why I think it's very important to appreciate our efforts. And so this is the first sentence. Appreciating, and then you can do it in different way. Appreciating my effort or appreciating this effort. Or as we move on in the meditation, we'll say appreciating your efforts. And that I think is also at the root of a compassionate non-grasping. The fact that often we think, I can do this, why can't they? If they tried harder, they would succeed like myself. So we're just thinking, you know, they're exactly the same, exactly the same condition. But not at all, because sometimes we can do something like that. And for people to do something like that, it's just like, for them, it's such, so difficult. I mean, now it's different, but many years ago, at the beginning of our marriage with Stephen, when we lived in a community, and everybody had to cook once uh, a week for 15 people. And me, you know, I can cook in my sleep. I mean, I, I am quite good at it. And then Stephen, you know, he was not so good at it. He has not such a... So he would do rice, veg steamed vegetables, and a sauce. 
you know, and every time we would have a slightly different source. That's what he experimented with it. He got very good with the source. And then one day he was going to do something different. So he was going to do some kind of, you know, bowls, kind of, you know, millet bowls. And so I went to see if I could help. And it took him two hours to make these bowls, which me, you know, very likely I would have done them in, you know, 30 minutes. But I let him do it because I think, you know, it was important. But I could see he was putting all the effort. But he was not like me. Me, I don't need a recipe. I just do it. You know, and him, he was following the recipe. Every, nah, 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 nah. And so he put lots of effort. And so I think what we have to do is really appreciate people's effort. They might not be our effort, but they really, again, like us, are generally trying the best they can considering the circumstances. And to me, this is really an important part of mudita, this, in a way, appreciating people's effort. Then you have the next one is rejoicing. And the Buddha put a great emphasis on joy because he saw that joy really helps us in the practice. And so I would say rejoice. We can rejoice in many different things. You can rejoice in my understanding, in this understanding. You can rejoice in your understanding. And this is funny when you are in a kind of a vipassana circle, because everybody is supposed to have insight, because it's insight meditation. And if you do insight meditation and you don't have insight, I mean, what's the problem, you know? And then it's all about, you know, my insight, your insight, you know, or his insight is bigger than mine, you know? It's getting closer to the goal. So rejoicing in that somebody understands something. Another thing you can say is rejoicing in your success. That's a little more tricky. Because, you know, if somebody has some success, we think, you know, we're going to, I mean, like often we have this idea when we grasp to think that things are kind of uh, limited. So there is only so much success. So if somebody gets a quarter of it, I'm not going to get that quarter. You know, there is less for me in the end when actually success, happiness, there is no limitation. And if we rejoice in somebody's success, then this adds to our joy. I remember many years ago, a friend was at a really good piece of news, really good. And within two minutes, I said, but have you thought about this? What about that? You know, and I kind of you know, deflated our balloon very fast. And then she asked me, why are you doing this? And I thought, why am I doing this? She comes with a good piece of news. Why am I afraid for her in advance, 10 years in advance? I mean, she's happy now. This is the condition now. And so I think to be careful with that one, rejoicing in your happiness, rejoicing fully in your success. And then the last one, being grateful for your existence, for my existence, this existence, your existence, or if you prefer, my potential, this potential, your potential. And this is something I really learned in Korea, was gratitude. They have a very profound practice of gratitude. Like in Korea, they don't practice the Brahma Viharas. They don't practice as a technique. 
loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. They don't have that technique. But in terms of the environment, you have a lot about cultivating ethics, and within that, you have a lot about cultivating gratitude. And to me, this gratitude, I think, is really a very important quality to cultivate. So being grateful for our existence or grateful for our potential, I think this is really kind of very important. So this is what I want to do now. So I'm going to do it like a guided meditation to finish with. So since I'm going to do it guided, you don't have to remember the phrases. I know how it is, you know, did she say this word or that and thing of that nature. So that's why I'll guide it. So. You don't have to memorize it. So finding a comfortable posture. The back is straight, the shoulders are open. And then gently opening our heart to ourselves. And appreciating my efforts Rejoicing in this understanding, being grateful for this existence. And you can do this practice in two different ways. You can either connect, recite the sentences, or if you prefer, you can connect to the quality. What is it I can appreciate right now? What is it I can rejoice in right now? What is it I can be grateful for right now? Or you can investigate how does it feel to appreciate? How does it feel to rejoice? To be grateful. Now extending our awareness, opening our heart to people in this room, taking them in turn, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your understanding, being grateful for your existence. Now expanding our awareness, opening our heart to life, lives outside this room. The trees, the animals, the people. Appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your success, being grateful for your potential.
Now expanding our awareness, opening our heart towards people we like who support us, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your success, being grateful for your existence. Now expanding our awareness, opening our heart to people we don't know very much, we feel neutral towards, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your success, being grateful for your potential. Now expanding our awareness, opening our heart to people we have some difficulty. Appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your understanding, being grateful for your potential. Now expanding our awareness, opening our heart to our communities. Maybe people around us we connect with, nature around us we connect with, or maybe animals around us we connect with. Appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your success, being grateful for your existence. So this is our last um, period together. So again, this is a very open discussion. If you have any question, any comments, anything you want to talk about, then this is your moment. Yes. Earlier in the afternoon, you were talking about um, um, I'm not sure I can remember how you said this, but when we were possibly in conflict with somebody or judging them uh, to stop and that would open up a big space. For, oh, it was when people had different views than you did. And instead of being in an argument, opening up, uh, uh, stopping the argument, trying to have a conversation, and that that would open up a, a space and a situation in which there could be more creative sparks, 
something like that. And I wanted you to say more about that. Okay. So, I mean, this uh, cannot, again, be done in all circumstances. You know, I mean, sometimes you have people who want an argument. I think we have to see, you know, who you are discussing with. Because I remember many years ago, I really learned that. Because, uh, I mean, as a French person, I used to really, uh, this is a little um, problematic tendency French people have, that uh, if you are in a discussion, just for the fun of it, you will take the opposite view. That's, I mean, so at one level, we love to argue. We love to argue. But actually, I found my master there. Because uh, in, when I lived in a temple at the nun, there was one time one uh, foreigner, one f uh, uh, European person came. And he would come for tea. And within half an hour, we would have that heated argument. So it happened once, it happened twice. And the third time, I thought, what goes on? And I saw that actually he wanted that. He really wanted, he always found a way to argue something. So the next time he came, I said, wait a minute. So we talk, and he kind of, I can see where you know, he wants to do. And I said, oh, yeah, why not? Yeah, could be possible. He never came back. <laughs> I was not fun anymore. So if we take those aside, you know, because then you can't really, you know, it doesn't, might not necessarily work with them. But what I found is that, in a way, if the other person, you see, sometimes the both persons are very fixed in their view, and then you're going to have an argument. Or one person is fixed in their view and you can play with it. That can be interesting to see how you can play with it or not. Because um, sometimes you can't. You, uh, sometimes there is certain things you can't discuss with some people. Uh, I think it's very important uh, at many different levels. Uh, so you have to, to choose, I would nearly say, the right person to have a dialogue with. And then what you can see is sometimes you go toward the dialogue or sometimes you go toward the argument and you can see how you can shift it. I mean, once, uh, this is an odd thing, but in France they have a burial plot which are in the family for centuries and it's very important. And lots of problem around those because over time name change and place, I mean, it's a long story. So anyway, there was a problem in my family about that. And so my mother was really upset and asked me to deal with it. So I phoned our best friend, which is her cousin, and we wanted both of us, both sides of the family, resolve this burial problem, plot thing. And so we start to talk. And then suddenly I see that we both are raising our voice and we both are going into an argument type thing. And then I thought, but this is not going to be helpful. So consciously, I lowered my voice, used different type of word, different more kind of like accommodation, open wording, and she responded to that. What was interesting is that she responded to it because she too wanted to resolve the thing in an harmonious way. And so that's what I found. So I went down, she went down, she went, and in the end, we found a good solution. But I, so that we could have easily 
gone up and up and up, and then the thing would have broken down. But what I found fascinating was that she really responded to me bringing it back down to a dialogue. And then we could both be creative about what can make sense, what is possible, how would both sides be satisfied with what arrangement. Or you can have like, you know, a philosophical discussion or uh, whatever kind of discussion. And what is interesting is to see what, what is a person thinking. You know, sometimes you, you see through their world and you see that they see the world in a different way. And I find that fascinating when you realize a person has a different perception. And generally we think my perception is the right one. There must be some problem with them, you know, if they perceive this. But if you think of the four types of Jung, which is an interesting concept, then he's basically saying, you know, you come into a room and some people will see the chair, uh, some of the people will feel the vibes, some of the people will think about what can I do with this room, and so the, some other people will be somewhere else. So, you know, you come to the same room and you might have a very different apprehension of it. And so sometimes when we have discussion, it's also interesting to see how does this person view this? I mean, once I kept getting into trouble with somebody in the community, when I used to live in community in England, again and again, I mean, we, we get into trouble. So finally, big difficulty, I thought, you know, let's talk about this. So, you know, I said, okay, can we talk about this? She said, all right, let's talk about this. And then she revealed to me that I was just like her sister. You know, so for, so for her, I represented her sister. And all the trouble she had with her sister, how oh, once I understood this, it was so much easier. You know, I thought, okay, okay. I mean, I am not a sister, but I don't know her sister, but if that's what the dynamic is, then mm, it's good to know that. So in a way, you can do this in many different ways in terms of what, what is it you're discussing from a philosophical problem to this, to that, to another. And to say, do we become identified and rigid or do we become open to the idea of the other? And then we discuss the idea, but not their identity. And the, how can we do this? So I think there, a lot of creativity can come in, in many different ways. And I think it can be great fun. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your beautiful and wise teachings. Um, could could you, I'm just going safe, straight to self-grasping. <laughs> Can you help us uh, stop grasping at just worries? I feel like I've spent years worrying. And it's, uh, I feel like it's starting to define me. And I know it's annoying to my family. Um, thank you. Yeah, so the thing. You see, fear... Worries is basically about fear. So fear is a function. It's an emotional function. It's a very important function because it has allowed the survival of the species. 
So, I mean, you know, it's fairly important to be fearful. Because if you are the type of person who are not fearful, like recently, very, uh, very sad, very sad, this fellow, the, the fellow with the YouTube account with his, you know, doing dangerous thing with his dog, you know, and jumping from cliff and doing amazing thing like that. And then uh, last time he did it, the thing did not open. So he died. So he was not afraid. I mean, for him to be afraid, he might have been afraid, but in a very different way, most of us would be afraid. So his level of tolerance of fear was quite amazing compared to us. And because of that, it's fairly dangerous. And a lot of people who do that sport, it's very dangerous. So fear is a, is a good function, is a very important function. But then, because of different circumstances, it might get habituated in a painful way. And so what we have to look at is to see what is it, what is good to be worried about? What is it to be, when, in a way, what is it I should be worried about? When I should be worried about it? And how long should I be worried about it? This is, in a way, the thing to look at. So, for example, let's take children, parents, Fair enough, I generally worried about their children. But through the life of the children in very different ways. And when they become teenagers, it's fascinating because you start to get this thing of if they do this now, they're 11, their life is going to be finished. Often you have this kind of like, because they do this now, they're going to do this forever after, which means da 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 da. I mean, they might do this now, does not mean they'll do it forever after, or possibly you could help them not to do it so much, or whatever. But anxiety, uh, fear, often comes from, a lot of it comes from amplification. You see, if you're afraid of something, what is it you're afraid of now? So are you afraid in the present? Are you afraid in the past? Because that's interesting to be afraid in the past. I mean, this is fascinating, because it's gone, you know? And then, are you afraid in the future? A lot of fear is about the future. And then I would recommend to you this film I saw idly zapping through the TV one many years ago when I was tired, and it had the best quote ever, and it's Dinotopia. It's a film about dinosaur or human and the usual adventure. And in it, you have one actor who became quite famous, and he's training, he's young, and he's learning to be fearless. Final proof of their courage. They have to jump over a chasm. So there is this huge chasm, and you have a group of girls and boys, and they have to show their courage, by jumping over the chasm. So the girls, the boys jump. And then our hero is like, he can't do it. And so the instructor says, fear is in the future, jump now. Good quote. And so in a way, when we are fearful, are we fearful 
right now because something is happening right now. And what is this thing happening right now? I mean, if you have somebody who is, uh, in a way, facing you with a gun, uh, then yes, fair enough to be fearful. And then what do I do about this? But if, like you have a friend of mine, who for 20 years, he worried that if something happened in his life, his life would be finished. So he always had this anxiety. If this happened, my life would finish, you know, poor, I will be a mess, everything. And then I meet him. And he looks funny. And I say, what happened? He said, well, you know, the thing I was afraid for so many years happened. And I'm okay. Because in the present, his creative potential could be activated. But when in abstraction, you see, this is a problem with amplification, that when you have fear in the future, you can really, I mean, you can really have amazing uh, scenario and really frighten yourself, you know? And, but it's in the future. It has not happened yet. I mean, it's like the people who are uh, afraid of dying. I mean, my teacher used to say, you know, practice urgently your life, rest upon a single breath, so to be really present to life now. But personally, I would say another mantra, you're not dead yet. So you're not dead yet, so do the best you can with this now, instead of worrying about it in advance. So then the thing is to see when am I anxious? You see, it could be, in a way, an habituated response to stress. It could be an habituated response to tiredness. I think we need to really look, when we look at these emotional habits, we need to look at what is the trigger, what are the contributing factors, what are the conditions because we're not anxious all the time to the same degree, and sometimes you're not at all. So then the question is, what is it I can help myself? First, to be less anxious, possibly to be less stressed, possibly to sleep better. Then, is it that we have an active imagination? Then maybe we should write stories. And then we can use imagination usefully there instead of going into this dreadful scenario. Is it actually more a feeling that is interpreted as anxiety and then snowball? Because it could just be a funny feeling. This is why I think it's kind of sometimes useful to do that feeling sensation mindfulness. How do I feel? So that you know what do you feel normally. And then notice when mm, I start to feel funny. And generally, I go into a whole, in a way, meaning of it, association with it. And then you might go into this terrible story. But instead, it's just suddenly I have this funny feeling. How is this funny feeling? What happened? Did something happen to my child? And I have to address it. But possibly I don't have from that to extrapolate for the next 10 years. But just, can I address this situation now in that way? So there is some here. Hi. 
Uh, you may have answered the question already, but I wanted uh, if you would could say a few words about papancha and perhaps how it relates to tonal notes and what to do about it, and does it relate to the answer you gave to the So the question is about prapancha, proliferation, yeah, and the feeling tone. So I think, in a way, proliferation generally is, you know, you have, basically you have contact, then you have feeling tone, but you also have perception, you know, and then, and then all these things come together. And then generally there is like, a, you see, prapancha proliferation can just be what I would call occupying the mind. You know, you're sitting there, twiddling your thumb, not much is happening. And sometimes you just idly thought. And then sometimes you idly thought and it's neutral. And sometimes you idly thought and you go into this terrible story. I mean, it's very interesting with proliferation. Do they remain neutral? And is it just kind of like a light occupying the mind? Or is it that one is easily triggered? You see, I think that's the thing to look. When, when is it that I'm easily triggered? Because I would presume you're not triggered all the time. So generally I would look in terms of uh, proliferation. Uh, is it a light proliferation I don't have to worry about? Is it something which leads to intensity? And where does it go? Is it linked to more a mental space or is it linked more to a change of feeling or is it actually a physiological? Is it that, you know, I have hurt myself or I was unable to do something and then, you know, like you try to do something and generally you were able to do it and now you can't do it anymore. And then, I mean, it's kind of a shift of identity. You know, for 20, 40, 30, 50 years you're able to do something, and then for whatever reason, you're not able to do it anymore. And that's problematic in terms of the identity. You know, you have, oh, I can't do this, which then I am less than. But I would say you can still do something else. So it's kind of to look, what is it that in a way triggers it? What are the contributing factors? I think they all come together. It, it, it doesn't feel as uh, mindful as that. It feels when it, when it gets loose, it gets close to acting out or doing something unskillful. So it's um, yeah, like, so, at, like a car out of control. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So then what you have to look at then, here what we're looking at is our limits. You see, this is what, with mindfulness, Generally, the mindfulness can make our limit uh, larger. So we might become more patient, we might become less angry, we might become less anxious, but there is a limit. And what is interesting is that limit, because we think, well, if I am mindful enough, no matter what, my limit will be unconditioned. But that's what is very interesting to look at, is the limit. And this I can see in myself, because I have a tendency to have like, you know, little impatient, I used to be a little explosive, I'm much less now. 
And then what's remain is kind of more like impatience. And then for me, it's very interesting to observe that sometimes the, the patience can be really wide. And then at some point, it's like, tack, it's gone. You know, and then sometimes it's short. It, it, it's very interesting to look at that, to see what is my limit, and to really notice the conditions, the trigger. Like I used to have really a lot of difficulty in airports, and I travel a lot. And so I really had to practice around that so that my, uh, my limits became much greater, much greater to handle those conditions. So I think it's kind of to really observe, and that's fun. I mean, personally, I think it's fun. And often people think, I'm terrible. I lost it. But personally, I would say, hey, what happened? You lost it. Fair enough. What happened? What, what was that moment which then you, in a way, got to your limit at that moment? And then what is interesting to look at then is how long does it last? Before it might have lasted a day, now an hour, now a second. That's why I find myself sometimes I, ah, and then it goes down as soon as I see it, but the thing of doing it doesn't stop. It, if something happens which is weird or shocking or whatever, unexpected, you still have the reaction. Because I think it's a survival mechanism. But then you can say, oh, I don't need to be upset about this. It's minor. And then you can have a gradation. What is it I really need to be concerned about, do something about? And what is it? Oh. It's just because this happened and now it's gone. Yeah, there was, then there is somebody here and then two people at the back. If you still, still have it. Um, uh, my, I don't know if I still um, have the question because uh, it was really about emotion and you talked about that. I was curious to know if you, um, when I think of emotion, I think of it made of sensation and thought, but I wasn't sure how, it, how you would talk about that. And then I thought, oh, certainly feeling tone must be in there, whether it's a pleasant sensation that then leads to pleasant thoughts, and then there's a feeling of joy that arises, or if there's some other mechanism that you see. Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah. I mean, generally, uh, emotion comes basically from the, the contact and the feeling tone. I think there is a strong connection with the feeling tone. And I quickly, from feeling tone, it goes into feeling sensation, emotion, disturbing emotion. And personally, I would say it depends. Sometimes it starts actually just as sensation in the body. That's why I think we have to be careful, for example, with depression. You have depression, which is more mental activity, which then affects the whole organism. And sometimes it's actually more mood. So it might not be so mental, but actually more the way you feel. And then it might be more physiological or biological or whatever. So I, personally, I would say it depends. Sometimes the emotion is more like kind of like nearly physiological. Sometimes you could say it's more emotional, like something really happened to trigger the emotion. 
we then are going to provoke the thought, which then the thought are going to reinforce the emotion. Or you might have a thought which then triggers an emotion, like because you could sit there being quite fine, and then you remember something in your past. So that's mental. But then you start to, oh, they did this, they said this, and then you have the emotion. So I think it depends. It really depends. I think it's kind of a, kind of a complexity of factors. Thank you. Okay, so there's a lady at the back first. <laughs> And then we'll have the lady with the checkered green shirt, and then you, yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about the invitation to do the what is this um, meditation. And I had quite an experience when you were explaining the instructions, kind of confusion about what, what this was about. And then when I did it, um, the invitation to ask the question from your from your stomach, and it was woof. It was a, an amazing experience, almost an emotional release for me. Where there was this, when you said there's like this funny feeling before, and you there was this funny feeling in my stomach, and sitting with it, you know, it it formulated to some fear and then but also some excitement because there was this relief a feeling of relief of being out of my head and being in my body so I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that uh, meditation and, and how to bring that into a more um, you know meditative or formal practice so yeah, I mean the the what is is it's uh, it, it's simple at one level and a little strange at another level, but yes, it's very important to do it from the belly, from the body. It's kind of like not it's not for head things. It's not an analysis or thing like that. It's really like the whole organism asking the question, and also I think by bringing it down, it helps with the stability, and often people can feel a certain sense of spaciousness or relief. And so the thing is that if one has already done a lot of um, uh, awareness practice, I would just complement it with it. I mean, of course, you can do just what is this by itself. But personally, what I do is a combination of the two. That sometime in the foreground, I have the question. And then maybe with a bit of listening or a bit of uh, breath or a bit of body, to kind of around it, to stabilize it. Sometimes I actually just do the breath or something else, and then time to time I just drop the question. So I think it's really what suits you if you want to use it a little bit. You can just use it in combination, so to kind of like anchor us in a different way with the awareness practice, so you can use it as a, a mean to drop it. Or you can use it as a means to bring more vipassana in terms of what is this? And generally it will bring some brightness. Um, could you elaborate on distinguishing between truly loving someone and grasping someone? I guess I get, it gets murky. 
Okay, so I think in a way, uh, loving someone, what does it mean to love someone? Uh, I mean, do we love them for themselves or do we love them for ourselves? That's the first question, you know? And that's where the appreciation arises. Do I appreciate the person for who they are or do I appreciate the person for what they give me? We generally do it for both. Generally, you have both. And then we have to be careful of the how much. Is it, in, is it relatively equal? Because if you appreciate them for themselves, then you can have both autonomy. To me, that's one thing which is very important because we have a very romanticized notion of love. And we generally think of love as a merger. You know, if I love somebody when I was in my 20s, I used to think if I love somebody, you know, I will know what they think and things like that. I mean, fortunately, we don't, you know, I think it's good. <laughs> you know, and to see now I see it more that love is not a merger. Love is actually two parallel lines growing together. So you have what you grow inside the line together and what you grow outside the line independently of the other. Because I think we have to be careful to put all our love, cultivating of love within one person. That's always a little problematic. And so to see that we can build love together and at the same time, we need to cultivate different kind of relationship with, in many different ways. Because I think love can be cultivated, you know, family, friends, animal, garden, I mean, lot, many different ways. And so when we cultivate what is between us, I think it's important that there is a certain autonomy, that we, we love the person for themselves, we love myself for myself, and then I love also the fact that we are together. And that within that, of course, there is a certain dependency, a certain influence. But uh, then what is the degree of it? Is there some autonomy within it or not? Because what we can see, people being together, loving each other, will generally influence each other to a certain degree. Because in a way, what does love give us? That it be of a child, an animal, a person. It gives us the opportunity to slightly come out of ourselves. I mean, this is a great gift to enter another life universe. Because the thing is that we are a little stuck within our condition. I mean, we cannot help it. We have this organism and the different thing which constitute it, and we are a little uh, limited by it at one level. I cannot read your mind, I mean, you know, many different things. So we are kind of like, we have that slight restriction. And so when we live together with somebody, we love somebody, you know, it's an opportunity to, to share, to open to another life, to another experience, so that in a way our universe, is more wide. We're not just restricted to ours. We have this other universe, somebody who perceives differently, who has their good quality, their difficult quality, like you have good quality and you have difficult quality. And so that's why, if, you know, 
uh, when we love somebody, there is that acknowledgement that, you know, this is helping me to open to somebody else. I mean, within safety and things of that nature. And to see, to be careful, grasping is actually loving the person for myself. That to me is really something to see. Do I kind of like see the person through my own eyes or do I see the person through their own eye to the degree I can? That's what we have to be careful. What is going on here? Like love is a mysterious thing, you know, to a, that suddenly you see somebody and you think, hmm. I mean, there is in a way the falling in love. When we fall in love, like we feel, you know, very intense. But basically, falling in love is all about amplification. So it cannot last. And then once amplification is passed, then, you know, we're back to the real life. <laughs> and then I would say that's where, you know, really love starts, you know. And of course, it's wonderful to fall in love, though I personally I think it was a little intense, but... <laughs> You know, uh, so it's in a way to see, do I associate love with the intensity of the feeling? Or do I associate love with a whole range of quality of caring, appreciation, sharing, sharing the space? How do we share the space? How we are affectionate with each other? How we are two body meeting each other, two thinking, meeting each other. So I think there is a lot of thing within it. So I think that's why we have to be careful. Am I grasping at the person? Am I grasping at the feeling? Am I grasping at the expectation? Or am I encountering this being and sharing things together and try to develop something which could be in a way quite beautiful for both of us and also for people around us in many other ways. And then, um, this, I had an experience during the what is this meditation, and I wanted to know whether it was uh, commentary or whether it was useful. Or another question, is commentary ever useful? So, so um, the question, what is this, felt uh, like I... It felt like I was born with that question. It felt so um, grounding. And um, in the, when we did the walking, uh, the part that was the commentary was um, seeing these different parts of my life and how that question never was uh, allowed or it seemed to me that uh, there were always answers. So there was, that question didn't belong. And, um, and, and then I sat down and um, went back to the experiencing of the what is, hearing what is this again. But was that useful to, it was my own personal history. Uh, so I think we can uh, do the what is this in different way. Like uh, if we do it in, um, the, the, I mean often people feel that. They feel this connection with the questioning. They kind of like, I think personally, I think it's a human need actually to be able to do this in a fun, creative way. I think it's kind of like little connected there. 
So you can do it in a traditional way, which is you just repeat the question and that's all you do. But I have seen, because I've worked with a lot of people who do awareness practice, that actually what you can do is more like a combination. And then you can use it in a very different way, either asking it of your life, but not in a ruminating way, but more in a brightening way. I think this is a function of the question is to brighten. It was use the brightening of the mind. And so you can also like do it, I think, to, to anything. You have a thought, what is this thought? And actually often the thought disappears just by asking the question about it. Often I feel it helps us to penetrate more within the experience. So I think it can be used that way too. No, I would not call it commentary. Only if it becomes repetitive. You know, like if you kind of, you see something, you brighten, and then you kind of go on just repeating it, then yes, but otherwise not. Because I felt that I had the choice to uh, not, like I felt like I was allowing myself, that I gave myself permission to have those memories of, like in my life, how important that question, it, 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 nothing specific, but just that, I saw myself at all ages with that question and not being able to answer it, but I allowed myself to see that, so that no, was no. okay? Yeah, yeah, that I would call more having an insight than a commentary, because it's kind of more experiential. Thank you. So maybe final question or comment. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you had 10 years of Zen practice in Korea, and then I think you said you uh, started Vipassana. And I'm wondering, just even hearing this dialogue about what, what am I? The, uh, what, yeah. But in Zen practice, there is that question, what am I? Who am I? Uh, actually, uh, this who am I, what am I, uh -huh. it's more a Hindu practice okay. uh, that you will find in some of the Advaita Vedanta tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as I know, I would have to look. I mean, you have 1,700 koan. So, who know, one of them could be that, yeah. but I have not come across it. So, the what is this is to make it more neutral. Because if what am I, who am I, you know, the I is kind of gets a little mm -hmm. prominent. So that's, but the technique is slightly diff, slightly the same. Mm -hmm. The idea is a bit similar. Okay, thank you. All right, and I think, yes, it's five o'clock and I think we finish. So thank you very much. And, and thank you, Martine, so much for today. Really. Keep well. Have a good life. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.